Let's see if that works. All right, let's see. There we go. How many people does it take to work a mic stand? <laughs> Thank you, Hugh. Um, we've been talking about <clears throat> relationships this semester in RUF, and tonight we're going to talk about the subject of love. And to do that, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's printed for you on your announcement sheet, or you can turn in your Bible or look on... Uh, your phone, if you would like. Uh, there are two men, uh, Bruce Brown and Rob Miller, and they are the CEOs of this organization called Proactive Coaching. And their purpose as an organization is to basically help adults, parents, from becoming nightmare sports parents. That's their purpose as an organization. And a few years ago, you might be familiar with this article, but they wrote an article titled, What Makes a Nightmare Sports Parent and What Makes a Great One? And what these men did basically was did an informal survey of 30 years of coaching. And they surveyed hundreds and hundreds of college athletes, only college athletes, and they asked them two questions. And the first question was this. When you think back over youth sports and high, high school sports, what were your worst memories? And almost without question, the overarching answer to that question was the ride home with my parents after a game. And they said it wasn't that their parents were you know, flying off the handle completely angry, yelling at them, belittling them. They said it was the small, just questions about what they did and why they did it. It was the simple critique that their parents would offer before the sweat had even dried on their uniform. Then they asked the question, when you think about youth sports and high school sports and you think about your parents, what were your best memories what were the things that you looked at and remember that gave you the most joy after a ball game? And the overwhelming response was a six-word sentence. I love to watch you play. I love that story because I think that story tells us something that every single person in this room already knows. And that is, everybody, for the most part, is looking at everybody else and wondering if you like me. Everybody in this room wants to be known, and not only do we want to be known, but we want to be loved. And that's why love is such a big deal to you. That's why so much thought goes into the I love you phrase in a relationship. When we're going to say it and how we're going to say it and where we're going to say it. And it's why so much thought goes into am I going to get the I love you phrase in return? And when we get it in return, it's a huge deal we light up. And it makes our day and we have an extra pep in our step. 
It's why some of you are incredibly sad because you've never heard the words I love you come out of your father's mouth. And that really hurts you. Why is it such a big deal? Because it's powerful. Love is power and it powerful and it taps into something inside you that is at the center of ultimate reality. It's been said that if God doesn't exist, then love is simply a chemical reaction in our brains and bodies. If God is singular, then He is not loving until He made the world. But God is community. Remember, we've been saying that all semester. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because God is community, love is at the heart of ultimate reality. That's the reason why love is such a big deal to you. It's because love taps into the center of who you are as a human being created in the image of God. And because love is such a powerful thing and such a big deal to us, we're going to spend tonight and we're going to talk about it. And my hope is, is we would see what the world thinks about love and we would bring that in line with what the Bible says that love is. And so before we jump into this passage, let me pray and ask God to come through His Spirit to help us. Father, we thank you that as we sang that your love is sure, that it is permanent, that neither life nor death, nor depth, height, anything can separate us from your love. Lord, some of us don't believe that tonight. Some of us feel very unlovable. And so we pray that tonight you would come and teach us about love. Teach us uh, about the incredible love of Jesus for us. And would you convince us of that love so that we might move out into the world around us and love people the way that you have loved us. Father, would you come through your spirit and do that? Convict us and challenge us, but also encourage us with your love for us through your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to look at three things tonight from this passage. We're going to see um, basically the problem, the problem with the way the world thinks about love because there's a sense in which the world or our culture has hijacked the way the Bible talks about love and the definition for love. Secondly, we're going to see that love is proactive. And thirdly, love is powered. So let's look at all of those uh, tonight. Let's start number one. The problem with the way we think about love. Think about, um, as we think about this topic, love is everywhere, isn't it? I mean, you cannot look anywhere without seeing something that has to do with love. It's, there's a love story in some sorts in every movie that you watch. Turn on the TV. There's something about broken relationships, about love. Turn on the radio. You hear the exact same thing. Every Taylor Swift song is a love song in some way, shape, or form. Every Disney movie ever is about love. The Bachelor is about love. And it has so saturated our culture 
that when it comes to our vocabularies and using the word, there's a sense in which it's lost its meaning, hasn't it? Think about it this way. We can talk about and hear people say, I love the rebels. And then a few sentences later, that same person can say, I love my wife. Same word, but used in very different ways. I love South Depot. <laughs> I love God. Same word, but they're not saying the same things. And so when we think about this definition of love and how the culture has hijacked and refined the word love, here's what I would say our culture thinks love means. Love is when someone or something else makes me feel good right now in this particular situation. Love is when someone or something else makes me feel good right now in this particular situation. If they make me feel good enough about myself, then it must be love. That's often the way we think about it. And friends, myself included in this, we have no idea just how much the culture has pressed in on us and shaped the way we think about this topic of love. Think about this. Why is it a problem for us to view the word love and as we think about the topic of love the way the world does? Well, because love, defined by our culture, is primarily a feeling. We talk about love and we talk about something that goes on inside of us. We talk about love in terms of my freedom, my choice, my feelings. We think about love and it's this hard to describe, magical spark, weird thing, maybe hard to pinpoint, hard to describe thing that happens inside of us. That's often the way love is talked about. And what's the problem with that? With describing and defining love primarily as a feeling. Which should be obvious, but the problem is that feelings change, don't they? I mean, think about how much is, how much is tied into, how your feelings are tied into so many things that change. They're tied into your circumstances and what's going on in the moment, to your mood to your psychology, to your emotions, to what side of the bed you woke up on, and what you're dealing with at the moment. Therefore, feelings are like all over the place. They're so unstable. They come and go. They ebb and flow. And the sad part is that this is the reason, one of the reasons, why we have such a high divorce rate in our country. I mean, think about it. If the operating premise of your marriage, which it is in lots of marriages, is as long as you make me happy, as long as I feel it, then we're good. I'm with you. I'm all in. As long as you are a means to my happiness, we're going to be okay. But the second that changes, I'm out. And I'm going to trade you in for a new model. Because you don't make me happy anymore. And so we say things like, I fell out of love that, with that person. And one of the natural questions that you're probably asking is saying, okay, Jason, if we're thinking about love this way, does this mean that when I think about what I want to be in love, I want to fall in love? And are you saying that my future 
As I think about love, doesn't involve happiness and doesn't involve romance. Are you saying that it's not like the movies? Are you saying that there are no fireworks? That, that it's not like getting caught up and looking in someone's eyes and being swept off your feet? You want feelings. I get that. You want to be married in 20 years and not be able to keep your hands off one another. We are driven by feelings. We, and the question then is, will you experience that? Will you experience, based on what we're saying, feelings of love and happiness? Of course. Or at least I hope so. But what I'm trying to say is feelings are a byproduct Feelings are a result of looking at someone else and committing to love, deciding to love, doing actions of love towards another person, which is what we're going to talk about in the second point. That's the way the Bible talks about love. And we come oftentimes and we elevate our feelings and we make it the sole priority and the sole criteria of determining whether or not we're going to commit to another person. And what I'm trying to say is that's backwards to the way the Bible talks about love. Because think about it. If your operating principle in your relationship is I am committed to this person as long as they produce feelings in me, I'm sorry and I want to be gentle here. But if that's your operating purpose, you are setting yourself up for a miserable, terrible marriage. Trust me. Why? Because your feelings come and go. Your feelings change. They're unstable. And your love has got to be grounded in something that is more secure than your feelings. And that's the way that often the world thinks about this topic of love. It's based on how you feel. And when I'm not feeling it, I'm going to trade you in for a new model and I'm going to move on until I find someone else. That's the way the world has hijacked the definition of love. Secondly, what's the Bible say about love? And the Bible talks about love being proactive. We think about love the opposite the way the Bible thinks about it because the Bible rarely defines love as a feeling. 99% of the time when the Bible defines love, it defines love as a mandated action. In other words, as a decision to love someone and to commit to them. Look at verses 4 through 7. The Apostle Paul in verses 4 through 7 shows us and defines for us what love is. And basically, what we take away from that is that love is action. That love is not about you. Love is not about your feelings. Love is an action that is to be done for the interest of another person. And so, Paul describes love and he says things like it's patient, and it's kind, and it's not envious, and it's not boastful, and it's not arrogant, and it doesn't insist on getting its own way. In other words, Paul is saying that to love someone means that you make a decision and a commitment to put their interests above your own. 
And look, there's so many things we could cover. Remember I've said this, we can't say everything. If we tried to say everything, we'd end up saying nothing. And so we can't cover everything Paul says about love here. I wish we had time to go word by word. But I want to focus on verses 7 and 8. Look at verses 7 and 8. Love bears all things. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then verse 8, love never ends. What is Paul saying there? Love is a bond that's inseparable, that it's a, a commitment. Real love lasts. It goes the distance. It never ends, he says, because it puts the interest... It's not worried about you. Real love worries and puts the interest of the other person above your own. Okay, again, lots of ways we could apply this. We could go the route of friendship and your parents and your classmates and your sorority sisters and fraternity brothers. But I know what you really want to apply it. You want to apply it with romantic love. Okay, that's why you're here. And so that's where we're going to apply this um, tonight. But again, there's so many ways we could apply it. And when we think about romantic love, here's the way Paul would define it. Romantic love is a decision, okay, that's important, a decision to be passionately committed to another person. A decision to be passionately committed to another person. And so think about that. If real love is commitment, if real love never ends, this means that you can't say that you love someone unless you're willing and ready to marry them. Commit to them. Because love never ends, right? It means that you cannot say that you love someone every time you well up with emotion and you feel like it and you like them and you got a crush on them. Because love is the ability to look at another person and say, I choose you. I choose you if suddenly all of your health went away and you could never walk again. I choose you. That's the way the Bible talks about love. And so that means when you're on your, this campus and you're in the grove your sophomore year and it's a day like today and you're under that tree and the birds are chirping and you're looking at that special someone in the eye and you utter those words, I love you, you're not being honest. Because love is saying, let's go to a church and let's stand before God and witnesses and let's commit to each other till death do us part. Love is saying, girls, you see all these guys out here? No, because I'm saying yes to you. Guys, it's saying, girls, you see all of these other girls on this campus? I'm saying no to them. Because I want to say yes to you. I've told you a couple of weeks ago that I've been doing lots of weddings. Most, lots of you have been to those weddings. And if you haven't, the next time you go to a wedding, listen closely to the vows that the bride and groom are taking. And never once does a bride and groom, as they are giving their vows, do they talk about how they feel in the present. Did you ever notice that? Vows are always promises of things that are to be done in the future. A promise to be loving and tender and faithful in the future for the rest of your life regardless of how you feel. 
That's what marriage is. You're making promises for the future. You see, love is looking at your spouse and saying, I will not leave you. When your looks go away. When your body goes away. When your health goes away. I will not trade you in for a new model. Love is saying, I will be here when you get sick. I will be here when we lose our parents. I will be here when we lose a child. I will be here when you lose your job and when we have no money. I will be here when you get depressed and when you struggle with sin and addiction in your marriage. I will not leave you. Because love is covenantal. It's binding. It's a commitment. It's two people standing in the kitchen wondering where the gun is and working it out. It's two people that say, one of them says, I'm not attracted to you right now and I'm quite certain I don't like you very much, but I will not leave you. I will be here. Love is saying, I will be here not because of my feelings, but despite my feelings. Love says that no matter what, I'm not going anywhere. Joe Novenson He's a pastor. Many of you have probably heard of him, but at Lookout Mountain Church near Chattanooga. And he married the love of his life. And he got an incredible story. And a few months after they were married, so the first year of their marriage, literally uh, the first three or four months of their marriage, he was working in a factory. And his job was to push... Uh, metal, sheets of metal through these huge rollers. And think about rollers that you see kind of putting down asphalt on the road, you know, those huge rollers. Think of two of those, okay? And he's putting metal in between those rollers. And one day he goes to work, and as he's doing his job, his hands, both hands get caught in the rollers, and it completely crushes his hands. First year of marriage. And so he literally describes it as he becomes like a child. He cannot eat. His wife has to feed him. He cannot change his own clothes. Uh, he cannot take a bath. Uh, he cannot go to the bathroom because his, on his own. So his wife has to take him to the bathroom and to wipe him. And I'm guessing this was not her dream of what married life was going to be like. And I'm guessing that his wife, in those early months of their marriage, that she wasn't actually feeling happy by the things that she was having to do. But Joe, as he describes it, but she, she was committed she did acts of love. She had made a decision to love. And Joe Novenson, her husband, says he learned more about love in those moments than he had learned his entire life. Because he saw his wife laying down his life for him. Friends, that is a picture 
of the way the Bible talks about love. Love is committing to love another human being. Okay, you put, you put in anything, your sister, your fraternity brothers, your friends, insert anybody, your spouse, whoever you're dating, even it's committing to love them, even when they're a burden, even when they've hurt you, when they've betrayed you, when they misunderstand you, even when it's hard. And so as you think about the way the Bible talks about love, and then you start thinking about dating relationships. So if love is commitment, and it's something that you can't fall in and out of, that it's something that just doesn't come and go, what does that mean for dating? Well, it means that dating's not real love. And listen, I'm pro-dating. I dated. You're going to have to date to get married, okay? So it's not about that. I, I think dating's great. I'm just saying that dating is not real love. Why? Because remember last week, the premise of dating is we're dating today, but we might not be tomorrow. And you see, because dating is so flimsy, because you're not in covenant you haven't stood before God and witnesses and taken vows with another person and that commitment is not binding. Therefore, you can walk away at any time. And because of that, love in a dating relationship cannot bear all things. It cannot endure all things. And let me close with this on this point. Some of you are going to walk out of here and think, oh, I've got to quit saying that in my dating relationship. I've already said it. I've blown it. Whatever, I need to wait. Or I need to wait, wait till this amount of time to say it or whatever. You've totally missed it if that's where you're going. Don't go there. Don't get into all the rules, okay? Here's what I want you to see. Whatever. <laughs> I want you to walk away here tonight, not worrying about, should I say it? Did I say it? I need to take it back. Walk away tonight with a mature understanding of love. That love is proactive. That it is a commitment. That it's covenantal. That it's permanent. And it is meant. Love never ends. Thirdly, love is powered. So here's the question. How in the world are we supposed to love that way? And I want you to notice in the passage, did you notice that Paul, how he personifies love? It's almost as if Paul is talking like there is a person that is doing all of these things. It's like Paul is begging us to think of a person. And as you think about tonight, some of you might be thinking, I'm going to take away, I'm going to by willpower, I'm going to love this way. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to do this. If you walk away here and that's your application, you will become extremely prideful or you will end in despair. The point of tonight is you must receive love himself. You must come to and meet love himself in the Bible, which is Jesus Christ. Because it's as you meet him and receive Jesus... You love out of the way that He has loved you. Friends, if you try to will yourself to love this way tonight, people will sniff it out a mile away and you will come across as extremely fake. 
And so the question, again, how do we love? The way Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, well, the only thing powerful enough to make us love this way is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died. Translation, when you hated God, He died for you. And he reconciled you to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Friends, the only thing that's going to break the hardness of your heart and my heart is the gospel of Jesus Christ and his love for you. Listen, if you're like me, and no, we would never verbalize this verbally, but oftentimes in our hearts, we say things like, I'll move towards them if they move towards me. Or if they just fix that, that just gets on my last nerve. And if they would just change that about themselves, then I would love them and serve them and we could be friends. That's the way we often think about love. We often think about love and it's, we, we want it. But boy, is it hard when it comes to giving love for other people. And what I want you to consider is think about just for a second if Jesus would have loved us that way. If Jesus would just move towards us if we moved towards Him, man, we would be in trouble. Many of you know I've got four girls, and so I'm due a Frozen illustration. <laughs> um, yeah, like a lot of my girls kind of are outgrowing it and kind of they don't like it anymore because they're trying to be cool, but my youngest, my youngest Eva who is four, is obsessed with Frozen. We've got the sing-along microphone. But also, Eva's got this thing to where, and many of you have probably seen her, but when she dresses up, and if she goes to church, she wears this, no matter if it's 100 degrees or 30 degrees, she wears this uh, cape, like white cape that comes around and comes down to about her elbows, and it snaps up near uh, you know, her neck. And... You ask Eva, what's going on with the cape? And she says, I'm Queen Elsa. <laughs> and she wears it everywhere when she dresses up and puts on her nice dress. Uh, and the thing, when you think about Frozen, here's the thing I like about Frozen. Is it actually puts, if you think about it, if you've seen it, and if not, track with me. It actually puts the world's definition, hijacked definition of love, right next to the Bible's definition of love. Remember in the movie, Anna accidentally gets her heart frozen by her sister Elsa. And remember the reoccurring line in the movie is there's only one act of true love that can break the curse. And so at that point in the movie, Anna, and it seems everyone else watching the movie, this is exactly what I thought because this is what Disney does, we think, okay, how's the curse broken? Well, we think in the worldly definition. She's going to meet the love of her life. They're going to fall in love. And he's going to give her the kiss. And the, it'll be all good. She'll, the curse will be broken. That's what the whole movie's marching towards. And then they throw you a curveball because that's not what happens, is it? No. She gets completely frozen over. In the climax of the movie... We think it's heading toward, towards a kiss. That's not what happens. The climax is the villain is taking a sword down on Elsa. And 
Anna, who's almost completely frozen over at this point, jumps in front of the sword at the last second and the sword comes down on her and it completely freezes her. And at that point in the movie, you're thinking, that's awesome because she gave her life, her own life for her sister and laid down her life for her own sister. But remember, an act of true love is the only thing that can thaw a frozen and broken heart. And so after that, what happens? The ice starts to melt off Anna, and she's completely made whole because the curse is gone, because it was an act of true love. I don't know what you think about Frozen, but I'm going to tell you this. There is a reason why that movie is the number one highest grossing animated picture of all time. Because it gives you a picture, and it resonates deeply with us. Remember, think about the beginning. There's something in us that taps into the center of who we are as human beings. It resonates with us because it gives us a true picture of love, and it holds that next to the world's definition, and says, the world says that love is emotionally fueled narcissism. That doesn't move us. We are moved when love is defined the way the Bible defines love, which is a passionate commitment to another person, and that's what we see in the movie. A passionate commitment to another person to put someone else's interest above your own. Friends, Jesus only asks us to do this and to love people this way because it's exactly what he's done for us. Think about what Jesus has done. He sacrificed his life for you. He went to the cross and the sword of God's wrath and judgment came down on him. It should have come down on us. But Jesus stood in our place and the sword of God's judgment came down on Jesus and it broke the curse. And it reconciled us to God the Father. And I want to suggest that it's only as we see that what Jesus has done for us and loved us with an undescribable and indescribable love, then and only then as we understand that will our frozen broken, self-centered heart be thawed and we will be fueled and empowered to move out into the world and love the people around us with the same love that Jesus has loved us with. Friends, it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that can fuel relationships till death do us part. Let's pray.